Thanks for joining us for today's message. We encourage you to email us and let us know what God is currently doing in your life. Or if you'd like to support the ministry financially, you can do so here on our website. But for now, we hope you enjoy this message from our guest minister. Thanks for tuning in today. Well, good evening. You may be seated. We're so glad to be here and to begin our sixth decade in Sioux Falls. Amen. And we want to tell you, we think the bangs are just fabulous. What wonderful people. And this church has supported us for a long, long time. And I want to say thank you for your support. It means so much. We're doing the work of God in Russia, and we love Russia, and I want to tell you, we are proudly colluding with Russia. (laughs) Proud of it. And I know that you're very inundated by the news. Uh, When we come to the United States, I turn on the news, and I find it quite entertaining (laughs) because it doesn't even begin to match reality. It just doesn't. And uh, I want to say things are fine in Russia. Putin is not a dictator. He is not an evil man. In fact, under his presidency, Russia has really become very stable. And Russia, as a people, are longing to have a good relationship with President Trump if people would just let it happen. So let's pray for that. The things are good. Uh, We have no restrictions on freedom of religion, none whatsoever. In fact, we may have more freedom than you have in the United States. It has gone from one extreme all the way to the other extreme. And it's just wonderful what God has done. Of course, Russia is not saved. The majority of Russia is unsaved. But we have freedom. We have no restrictions as long as you obey the law. Now, occasionally you'll hear that somebody gets in trouble. But when you dig a little deeper... In Russia, you find that most persecution stories are legitimate because somebody did something wrong, they violated a law, and they call it persecution. That is not persecution. That's breaking the law. And if you break the law in any country, you're going to get in trouble. And so most of what you hear is not true. It's, if people are in trouble, it's because they violated the law. When we dedicated our new building... Uh, Of course, Moscow is very expensive. It's a city of 22 million people. 22 million. There are 800,000 people in our neighborhood. And we are considered to live in the country. Can you imagine that? We live 11 miles from our office. And on a weekday, it takes two hours to get to our office. 11 miles. But it's a big city, and it makes things very expensive. So when we decided to finally build a building, we couldn't build, so we bought an existing building, and we bought our building from the Russian Space Agency, the equivalent of NASA. And it was an old building that they had built to be a conference hall for big scientific conferences but they had not used it since the end of the Soviet Union, so it was just empty. In fact, it was completely gutted. There was nothing there but bare walls. So we bought this building that was just bare walls for the great deal of $5.3 million. (laughs) Cheapest deal we had been able to find in Moscow. Not the best location, but it was something we could work with. And we began to work. We renovated. 
It cost $18 million to renovate that building. And praise God, we paid cash. We never borrowed one penny to do it. It is a miracle. It's a miracle. And we did it in two years. That is a miracle. Just a miracle. And when we constructed, when we were in the construction business, I'll tell you a little funny story. One day they had brought in the jackhammers and they were breaking the old concrete and trying to make things level in the building. And suddenly the KGB showed up in our facility with the director of the Russian Space Agency. And they said, turn off the jackhammers. If you don't turn them off, we're going to cut the electricity to the building. So we turned off the jackhammers. And they said, there's something about this building that you don't know. Under this building is a secret laboratory. Well, we had done due diligence. We had looked at all the city plans, but when it is a secret laboratory, guess what? It's not on any of the plans. And come to find out, they had constructed the building to conceal the laboratory. And every time we used the jackhammers, we were causing dust to move in the laboratory, and the laboratory was a dust-free zone where they make all the pieces for the Russian space station. And they said, if you damage any of those pieces because of dust in the air, and if something happens to the Russian space station, we will blame you and your church. Well, thank you very much. We didn't know that when we bought this location. So we had to reinforce the entire building, the walls, the columns, the floor, with steel, cost a million dollars we did not anticipate spending so that when we used the jackhammers, no dust would move. Well, finally, after a very long process, we finished the building, it was time to dedicate. And President Putin's administration alerted us that they wanted to send a delegation to attend our grand opening. It was wonderful, just wonderful, five, minute, five men from President Putin's administration, they sat right on this side. Each of them came to the stage, and they were so godly. One man said, this is a member of the President's cabinet. He said, Jesus said, where two or three of you are gathered together, he's in the midst. He said, it's obvious Jesus is here with us today. I thought, what an amazing statement. The next man stood up and said, Jesus said, that he is the vine and we are the branches. And as long as we abide in the vine, we will bring forth much fruit. It's obvious this church is abiding in the vine. The next man came and sang a blessing over our church. He sang the word over our church. And I kept thinking, I wish the news media was filming this. Just imagine a U.S. senator doing that or a U.S. congressman doing that. That's what was happening. Isn't that remarkable, Michael? Just remarkable. I love to tell that story. But anyway, things are good in Russia. And we're grateful that God called us there and our sons. We have eight Russian grandchildren. And we're just thankful. Just thankful. And tonight we're thankful to be here with you on my 60th birthday. Didn't Denise sing good tonight?
Honey, that was wonderful. Thank you. Open your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 5. And tonight we're going to begin in verse 8. And tonight, tomorrow morning, and tomorrow night, I'm going to be speaking on one theme. How to resist the devil and how to drive him back across the line. How to stop him from getting entrance and what to do if he's already found entrance into your life. How do you get him out of your personal affairs? And Father, we thank you for tonight. We thank you for the ministry of the Holy Spirit that is in this place. And Holy Spirit, tonight we ask you to do your work among us. We ask that you would open our hearts and help us to open our minds. And Holy Spirit, tonight I look to you as the great teacher. Lord, we don't ask for a transfer of information, but Lord, we ask for revelation in this place tonight. Do what only you can do tonight. We yield to you. I ask you to help me speak. And I ask you to help every person here. Give us ears that we can hear what you have to say to us tonight. And we thank you for this in Jesus' name. And everybody said, Amen. First Peter chapter 5. And we're going to begin in verse 8. And then we're going to look at verse 9. And in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8, Peter is writing, and he says, Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, as a roaring lion, walketh about seeking whom he may devour. Then in verse 9, he says, Whom resist steadfast in faith. But tonight, I want us to begin in verse 8, where he says, Be sober, be vigilant, and we're going to begin with that word vigilant. The word vigilant in the Greek text of the New Testament is the word Gregorio. If your name is Greg or Gregory, that's where your name comes from, from this Greek word Gregorio, here translated as the word vigilant. And this word vigilant, the Greek word Gregorio, was only used in one specific way, and that's good because it means it can only have one possible interpretation, and that helps us to understand the verse. This word vigilant, the Greek word Gregorio, was only used when there was a sinister force that was trying to access a person's life or access a person's property or their personal affairs. And the word vigilant, the Greek word Gregorio, means be on high alert. It means construct a barrier, build some kind of a border, put up a defense, be vigilant, be on high alert, because... Your adversary, the devil, as a roaring lion, walketh about seeking whom he may devour. And here in this verse, because of the word lion and the word devour, we have the mental picture of a lion that is crouched over the carcass of a dead animal. And he's mauling the animal to pieces, shredding the meat of that animal, chewing on the meat of that animal. That's what most of us see, a lion that is devouring an animal. But there's a problem. Because the word devour that is used in this text is the Greek word pino. The word pino is never translated devour. The word pino is a word which means to drink or to slurp. To drink or to slurp which means the picture that is portrayed in this verse is not of a lion eating the meat. The meat is already gone. There's nothing left but the juices. And this beast is so 
determined to totally consume this thing, that now the beast is pino, devour, slurping up the juices that remain. And Peter now is painting a picture for us, telling us you need to understand the intention of the devil. His intention is not just to hurt you, not just to victimize you, but to so totally consume you until finally he slurps up the juices that remain, and there's nothing left of you at all. And that is why he tells us to be vigilant. Everybody say vigilance. If he's there, if we know that he's walking about as a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour, whom he may slurp up, then it makes sense that we would be vigilant. Now let me ask you, if you knew that an intruder or a thief was going to come to your house tonight, how would you deal with that? Would you say, well, we'll deal with it and see if it happens. If it happens, then we'll deal with it. Then we'll call the police. Or would you be vigilant? You would be vigilant. You'd put bars on the windows. You'd put on an alarm system. You'd call the police to alert them that your house may be under attack. You would do everything you could to protect your residence if you knew someone was going to try to intrude your home. Now, Denise believes in locking the door to the house. And I made fun of her for years because we kind of live in the country. We live on about an acre of land. There's 800,000 people in our neighborhood, but we live in a little area where there's a forest, where there's a field, and we actually have a piece of land in the middle of this huge metropolis. And I would always say to Denise, why are you locking the door all the time? And in fact, we have so many locks on our door, it was like we were living inside a safe. Every time I wanted to walk out the front door, I had to unlock this one, unlock this one, unlock this one, because Denise was making sure the doors were locked. And I kind of mocked her for that. And one day, I was sitting in the TV room watching television, and suddenly I heard a yell from the front of the house, and it was Denise. She said, Rick, come as quick as you can. Come to the front of the house. So I came to the front of the house. She said, look through the people of the locked door. <laughs> Very special how she said that. The people of the locked door. Reminding me, of course, that she was the one who had locked the door. I looked through the people, and to my amazement, there was a naked woman standing outside the front door of our house. Now, I don't know if any of you have ever had a naked door, a woman come to the front door of your house, but when you see a naked woman standing at the door of your house, it's quite shocking. Her hair was nicely groomed. She looked great, except the fact she was naked. And this was a woman who was on drugs. And she had wandered in from the forest behind our house onto our property because the back gate was open, made her way all the way to the front door of the house, banging on the door, demanding to be let in, said it was her house. She wanted back in, but she couldn't get in because the door was locked. Somebody in our house had been vigilant. So the man who takes care of our property came, took this woman, tried to wrap her, but she was so determined to be naked, she kept throwing everything off. She was on drugs, out of control. 
He walked her to the back of the property, outside the back gate. She kept coming back onto the property. Denise and I watched from the living room through the window. And finally, we got her off the property, and then she just lingered around the back gate, waiting to see if that man would disappear so she could get back in. And I began thinking, what if Denise had not locked the door? What if I'd been sitting there leisurely watching television and suddenly a naked woman walked through the TV room door? It would have been a totally different picture. It would have been loud. It would have been horrible. It would have been scandalous. A naked woman in the pastor's house and trying to get a naked woman on drugs out of the house might have really been a difficult thing. But because somebody had been vigilant, (laughs) she couldn't get inside. So we kept her out. And when Peter says, be vigilant, that's the picture that he has for us. Build a barricade, do something, lock the doors, close every crack, seal every door, do everything you can to make sure the enemy stays on the outside and never finds entrance into your personal affairs. Now, I'm going to tell you the highest level of spiritual warfare. Do you want to know what is the very highest level of spiritual warfare? I've got a book out there called Dress to Kill. It's a classic. It's used by people all over the world. But I'm going to tell you the highest level of spiritual warfare is not spiritual weapons. The highest level of spiritual warfare is living a consecrated and sanctified life. Because it shuts every door. It seals every crack so the enemy cannot get inside. He's looking for some way to access us. Jesus referred to this in John chapter 14, verse 30, when Jesus says, the prince of this world is coming. Now listen to the words of Jesus. First of all, Jesus called him a prince. Jesus didn't argue with the fact that Satan has authority. He called him the prince of this world. And Jesus said, the prince of this world is coming, but he has nothing in me. The Greek actually says, he has no landing spot in me. It was the equivalent of saying, the devil can circle me 10,000 times, but it will do him no good because there's no place in me that he can land on. Every door is closed. Every crack is sealed. There's no place through which he can penetrate me. And likewise, when you're living a consecrated life, a sanctified life, when you're reading your Bible, you're praying in the Spirit, loving your wife, walking in holiness, just about every door is closed. And the truth is, if you look at most of the attacks that you have suffered, me too, most of them are due to the fact of negligence. If you don't spend time with your spouse, guess what? You're going to have a marriage problem. It's going to create an opening for the devil to get into your marriage. If you overuse your credit cards, guess what? You are opening a door for the devil to get into your finances. If you abuse your body and eat wrong all the time, you are opening the door for your body to come under attack. If you really look at your life, you'll find the majority of attacks are because of some area of negligence. And if we would just live consecrated, sanctified lives, it would stop 90% of the attacks. And when Peter says be vigilant, he includes 
sanctification and consecration, just living right. But there are surprise attacks. They do happen. They do happen. I'm going to describe one of them tomorrow night. When Jesus was in the ship going over to the other side, the Bible says there arose a great storm of wind. No one anticipated that attack, but in the middle of the lake, in the middle of the night, when they were on the way to a great breakthrough, they came under attack. And sometimes surprise attacks really happen. We had one happen to us in the early 90s that I'm going to tell you about. The Soviet Union had just fallen. Denise and I had just moved with our family to that part of the world. And the Lord spoke to our hearts and told us to go on television. And his word to us was, take Sunday school to the Soviet Union. Well, the Soviet Union had never heard the teaching of the Bible. The Bible had been illegal. So they didn't know the most elementary principles of the Bible. To them, it was all revelation. It was all brand new. So we begin to do what no one had ever done, never in the entire history of the Soviet Union. We begin to fly from city to city and negotiate with higher-ranking communists for time on television stations. And God gave me grace. God opened doors. And soon we were broadcasting all over the Soviet Union. And because it was a new program and I wanted to establish a relationship with TV viewers, I said, if you write to me, I will write you back. I did not know 800,000 people were going to write to me in 10 months. Well, at that particular time, it was the end of the Soviet Union. There were no computers. There were not even calculators. There were no cash registers. They just didn't exist. When we went to the store to buy our groceries and we went to the checkout lane to pay, there was no register. There was no calculator. Do you know what there was? An abacus. Now, how many of you know what an abacus is? The younger people probably don't even know what that is. But the abacus has all those beads that you push back and forth like this. And Denise and I would watch with our mouths open as those women were masters of the abacus. And they would begin sliding those things back and forth. I almost wanted to pay them a second time just so I could watch them do that. How in the world do they do that? There was nothing electronic. Well, when you have 800,000 pieces of mail and you just promise the viewers, I will write you back, and you're somebody who keeps your word, you have a major problem when you don't have any computers. So our staff was literally digging through tons of mail. And finally, we got computers. And we were the first organization in that particular republic to be officed with computers. We were the first. We were the talk of the nation. People were even coming to our office to see the computers. They were the old desktop Macintosh computers. Oh, wow, they were the coolest thing in the nation. And we were so proud of our, our computers, and finally we were answering our mail, and every morning we would meet together in the staff, and all of our staff were the sons or Daughters, the grandchildren of people who had been in prison for their faith. All of their parents had been arrested by the KGB, sent to prison by the KGB, but now they had a period of freedom. They're in the office with us. Every day we're holding hands, worshiping, praying in tongues with no fear of retribution, answering letters, sending product. They are living in their dreams. The power and the presence of God was in our office.
And then one morning, very early, I got a phone call from the guard. He said, come as quick as you can. So I put on my clothes and rushed to the office. He said, just walk, walk through the office and see what, what has happened. And I walked through the office, and someone had come through all of our offices with a hammer and had burst the screens out of all of the computers. And then whoever the culprit was had taken big spikes from the local railroad track and had nailed them through the keyboards of every computer into the desk. And in the middle of every nail in every computer was a death threat to the person who operated that computer. If you continue to work at this desk, in this ministry, you will be killed. And then they described how they would be killed. Well, it was about that time for people to come to work. They came to work. They came into their offices. They were stunned. People were crying. People were actually screaming. When they saw the notes, they were terrified. And now when we met together for prayer, rather than have a spirit of unity and faith in the presence of God, fear, fear had penetrated our office. And what was really bad was we all understood it was someone on the inside that had done this. We all knew that. And in fact, whoever this person was, was so familiar with every one of us that when we were not at home, this person began going to our homes to do damage. For example, one day Denise and I came home walked in the front door of our house, and whoever this person was had gone into the kitchen and had pushed all of our dishes out of the kitchen cabinets onto the floor, busted every single piece of pottery that we had at a time at the end of the Soviet Union when there were no dishes to purchase. Then they went upstairs to our bedroom, opened the closet doors, took buckets of paint, and poured paint into all of our shoes at a time when there were no shoes to purchase. The person was so sinister. They pulled back the sheets on our bed, poured a whole bucket of white paint into our bed, then remade the bed so we wouldn't know it until we went to bed that night. And when we went to bed, we pulled back the sheets, and there our bed was destroyed, including a quilt that had been just made by Denise's mother, everything destroyed. Our clothes were destroyed, our shoes, our bedding, our dishes, everything destroyed. And that's not the end of the story. We had so many Americans working for us that there were 27 American children who didn't speak Russian. So we had to form some kind of a school for these 27 children. So we made a small school, it was called the Good News Academy, and all of our children went to that school. And one day at lunch, all the children sat down to open their lunch pails, to eat their lunch, and in every lunch pail there was a death threat. We're going to kill your parents, and this is the way we're going to kill them. Now, I'm going to tell you, that's not good news for young children. Then our church, which was new, filled with the power of God, signs and wonders, such wonderful things happening. And one Sunday as we were worshiping, people began to let out blood-curdling screams in different part of the auditorium, and they began waving paper in the air. And I knew what it was. 
The culprit had left death threats all over the auditorium in random seats saying, if you continue to come to this church, you will be murdered. This went on for 10 months. 10 months. Literally every day. Every single day. And we felt like we knew who it was. But we had no evidence. And you can't act on suspicion. You just can't act on suspicion. You have to have evidence. You have to have hard facts in order to dismiss someone or to deal with someone. You have to have something to prove that there's a reason. But there was no proof. This person was so sneaky, so sly in the way that they operated. And in those 10 months, everyone on staff was trying to figure out who is it among us that's so mentally sick, so mentally twisted, that they would wreak all of this destruction among us. And rather than stand in faith and pray every morning, now when we stood together, rather than pray in faith, people were looking at each other as if, are you the one, are you the one, are you the one? And what all of them didn't know was in 10 months, all of them had been to me with their ideas of who had done it, And by the end of the 10 months, everyone in the office had been accused. The accuser had literally been let loose inside our organization. You say, well, Rick, what did you do? Well, of course, I prayed and prayed and prayed, and prayed, and prayed, and Denise and I talked about it in the morning when we got up. We talked about it at night when we went to bed. Every time there was a silent moment, we were talking, who is it, who is it, who is it? And we felt between the two of us that we knew who it was. But if it was who we thought it was, this was going to be very difficult because it was a visible person, and we didn't want it to be that person. So... I called the KGB. (laughs) They owed me a favor. (laughs) When we first moved there, it was the end of the Soviet Union. There was no cash. Everything was falling to pieces. And the local director of the KGB came to me in my office and said, Mr. Renner, we need help. We need new outfits for the KGB. We don't have the money. Look at them. Our outfits are falling to pieces. Would you help us? And Denise and I, in our ministry, we bought all the uniforms for the KGB in our region. So every time we saw the KGB or a policeman walking on the street, they were walking in clothes that we bought for them. Well, the Bible says in Proverbs that a man's gift makes room for him. And I knew they were grateful. So I decided to let my gift make room for me. And I called them. And I said, here's our problem. Something sinister. Someone in our organization is leaving death threats. Told them about everything that happened. The destruction of the children, the church, the clothes, the everything, everything, everything. And the local leader of the KGB said, collect all those death threats. Do you still have them? I said, yeah, I have them all. Collect them all and send them to our main office. We'll turn them over to the handwriting analysis department. Then call a staff meeting 
and let me come speak to your staff. I said, well, what will you do? Don't worry about that. You just call the staff meeting. I'll handle it from there. <laughs> so we gathered together all those death threats. It was a stack like this. Sent them to the main office of the KGB. They analyzed them. Three days later, I called a staff meeting. Called the staff together. And you have to remember, these were all kids whose parents and grandparents had been sent to prison by who? The KGB. So I called them together. I can see it like it happened just right now. They're sitting in the back room of the office, 50 of them. And I said, today, we're going to have a guest speaker. <laughs> they said, well, who is it going to be? I said, it's a surprise. <laughs> if you'll just stay here, I'll be back in just a moment. So I walked to the front of the office, opened the door, and in walked two KGB officers wearing clothes that we had purchased for them. And we walked back to the back room together and with me and the big guy walked through the door together. Our staff's mouths literally just dropped open because it says right there. I mean, it's written right there. It's very obvious who this is. And of course, they were all thinking, Pastor Rick is working with the KGB. <laughs> and that moment, I was. <laughs> so he came in and he said, today we have an experiment. And he handed out pieces of paper to every person in the room. And then he handed out pencils. He said, today we're going to all write a note. I didn't know what he was going to do. This was new to me as well. So Denise and I were sitting there. We were the only two not writing notes. We were just watching. Oh, Denise is saying she wrote the note. And he dictated and he said, write. And we look as they all begin writing. Write. If you continue working for this organization, if you continue working for this organization, we are going to murder you. We are going to murder you. I looked at Denise and I said, what has happened to us? Now 50 people are writing death threats. And then when they finished, he said, turn the paper over and move the pencil to the other hand in case you tried to disguise your handwriting and we're going to do it again. And they began writing it again. He collected all the notes, and right in the presence of them all, he said, I'll call you in two or three days, and I'll tell you who wrote all the original notes. He walked out, and guess what? That was the end of the attack, because the person knew they had been caught. It just stopped it, just dead in its tracks. Never happened again. Three days later, he called. He said, well, here's the answer. And he told us who it was. It was exactly the person that we did not want it to be. And when I heard who it was, it broke my heart. And then I was angered. I had every right to prosecute this person for what they had done. According to the law of that republic, that person would still be sitting in prison today 
if I had prosecuted. And I was ready to prosecute. And the Holy Spirit spoke to me and said, so, you're going to prosecute a mentally ill person? I said, yes, I certainly am. <laughs> this person was mentally ill. There's no doubt about it. Mentally ill, twisted, bent. The Holy Spirit said, so you think it's right to prosecute somebody that's mentally ill? And I was belligerent. I said, yes, I think it's right and I'm going to. He said, would you rather prosecute or heal? Huh. You know, sometimes God asks us questions we would prefer that he doesn't ask because his questions require us to come to a higher level. I said, well, I guess I'd rather heal. I really didn't want to, to be honest. I'm not going to lie to you. I did not want to heal. I wanted to prosecute. But I knew that meant I was to heal. So Denise and I, in a very, very difficult way, came to a place of decision. You know, sometimes when you're a husband and a wife, it's hard for you to get into agreement with what you're supposed to do, especially when you feel you've been so violated. And we had been so violated, manipulated, lied to, schemed against. It was just unbelievable. And for Denise, it was particularly difficult. But we made a decision together to conceal and to heal. And from that day until this day, no one in that team has ever known who was the person who did that. We covered it. And I wish I could say the healing process was easy. It was not easy. It was not easy. The manipulation continued. The culprit had been caught. All that stopped, but manipulation continued. But I believed and Denise believed that we were to be agents of healing. We worked with it. And that person is not in our ministry today, but that person is still in the ministry and is very effective. And God used us as an agent of healing. You know what's interesting? Sometimes God entrusts you with difficult people. Maybe there's someone difficult in your life. Rather than despise them, want to get rid of them, maybe God is wanting you to be an agent of healing. Do you think it was a mistake that God gave Jesus Judas Iscariot? Do you think God did not know who was Judas Iscariot? God was giving Judas Iscariot an opportunity to repent, which he turned down. But God knew if anybody could handle Judas Iscariot, it was Jesus. And God trusted us, and we did our best. I don't know if we did everything right, but we did our best. And praise God, that person today is still being used, and nobody knows. Amen. Well, it's best to keep the enemy out. Well, what do you do when you wake up and he's already in? 
Maybe you're one who's been negligent in your marriage, and now he's already in your marriage. Or maybe you've been negligent with your health. (laughs) That's the reason for most health problems. Not always. Please don't think I'm being mean. I'm not. But most health problems are due to neglect. And now he's in. Or maybe you messed up in your finances, you're screaming devil, and it's really true, the devil's in your finances, but you did something to open the door, something unwise. Now he's in. Or how about your kids or your grandkids? Ay, 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 he's in. How do you get him out? Well, best to be vigilant. Everybody say vigilant. Being consecrated, being holy, just doing things right keeps him out. But if through negligence or by surprise attack, both can happen. If he's gotten in, what do you do to get him out? Wow. And that's why Peter says in verse 9, whom resists steadfast in faith. Everybody say resist. Now I'm going to read to you directly from my notes. Is that okay? I don't read from notes very often. But I'm going to read to you from my notes about this word resist. It's the Greek word anthistomy. It's a compound of two words. The word anti means against. The word istomy means to stand. Compound the two words together to stand against. That's the word resist. But in fact, it's a military term. It means to resist to arrange oneself against, to strategically oppose an orderly and pre-planned resistance. Pre-planned. In other words, this is not waiting until the attack happens and then trying to figure out what to do. This is an orderly pre-planned resistance. This is constructing your life, constructing your affairs in such a way that he can't get in. Just like Jesus. He's coming. That's okay. Because there's no landing spot here. There's no entrance. There's no way that he can get in. Remember the Apostle Paul said in Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 27. He says, give no, anybody know what it says? Place to the devil. That word place is the Greek word topos. The word topos describes a real concrete geographical location. Topos is where we get the term for a topographical map. That's how real it is, such a real geographical location. And when Paul says, give no topos, no place to the devil, he means literally the devil is looking for a concrete specific entry point. He is literally looking for an entry point whereby he can access you. And Paul says, give him no place. Close every place, every entry spot. Close it. Make sure he has no access. Do everything you can. And that's why he continues in Ephesians chapter 4 and says, stop the gossip, stop the backbiting, stop this behavior. Why? Because wrong behavior, wrong actions opens the door. And tonight I'm going to end with a story, and we're going to begin here again tomorrow morning. In Revelation chapter 3, you don't need to turn there, I'm just going to tell you about it. In Revelation chapter 3, Jesus addresses the church at 
Sardis. Everybody say Sardis. I've been to Sardis many times. It's an amazing, amazing ancient city. In fact, I know the man who excavated the ancient city of Sardis. He's a friend of mine. And the most ancient part of Sardis was built on the top of a hill. It was an acropolis. Fragments of it are still there. Most of it's gone, but some of it's still there. And I've been there. Denise and I have made the climb. Very difficult climb. But thousands of years ago, the city of Sardis was famous. Famous. The king of Sardis was King Croesus, who was reputed to be the wealthiest man in the history of the world. And the city of Sardis was very smug about itself. They said because of where they were on the top of the hill, because their mountains were so, their walls were so tall and their walls were so thick, they couldn't be penetrated, not ever by any enemy. And though enemies had tried to penetrate them, no enemy had ever been able to penetrate the city of Sardis. So it had a reputation that it was a city that could not be taken. Well, when you have a reputation that you're very strong and you can't be taken, you can't be penetrated, that's good that you have that reputation, but that's also bad because you can become very smug and very prideful about yourself and forget, and forget that everybody can be taken. And while the city of Sardis lived so smugly in their citadel, years and years passed and they reveled in how safe they were, but the earth was moving. And as the earth moved, cracks began to form in the foundation of that fortress. But they were so smug, they weren't even looking at their foundations. They didn't know that cracks were forming. And one day, while the people of Sardis were sleeping, an enemy came. And the enemy penetrated them through their cracks. Everybody say cracks. And when the people woke the next morning, they were surrounded by an enemy that had taken them through their cracks. Those cracks represented negligence. Negligence. They didn't look at themselves. They didn't take themselves serious. They didn't look at their foundations. They just didn't even think the devil could attack them or an enemy could attack them. And while they were not paying attention, cracks formed, and they were taken through their cracks. That's the background to the church of Sardis in Revelation chapter 3, and that's why Jesus said to them, strengthen the things that remain. Be careful or I'll come upon you as an enemy and I'll overtake you like a thief. That was their history. He was speaking language to them that they understood. Well, best to keep the devil out. That's what Peter said, be vigilant. Gregorio, be on high alert. Put up your guard, build a barricade, build a border, keep him out. Why? Because your adversary, tomorrow morning we're going to talk about that word adversary, what it means. Your adversary, the devil, what does that mean? Tomorrow morning. The adversary, the devil, as a roaring lion, walketh about seeking whom he may what? 
devour the word pino, his objective is not just to maul you, but to slurp you up till nothing's left. Whom resist. Anthistomy, an orderly pre-planned resistance, strategic opposition, making sure he never gets inside. And then he says, whom resist steadfast, verse 9. The word steadfast is the Greek word stereos. The word stereos means to bolster or to reinforce. Just like you would reinforce the walls of a building or reinforce a building with columns. You can reinforce yourself. You can bolster yourself. There are practical things you can do to construct yourself so that he can't get in. And that's what I'm going to talk about tomorrow night. So I told you it's going to come in three parts. So tonight we identify the culprit, the devil, roaring lion, trying to get on the inside. But if we'll be vigilant, we can stop that. If he's already found his way on the inside, we can push him out. We're going to talk about that tomorrow morning. Oh, tomorrow morning, I'm going to give you a revelation on John 10.10 that's going to transform your whole thinking on John 10.10. The thief comes but to steal, to kill, and destroy. You're going to hear that word, that verse in a brand new light tomorrow. We are not wimps. We're not defeated people trying to get victory. We are victors. We are victors. Christ has already overcome we have overcome. The devil is no threat, but he is a devil. And we have to be vigilant. Did you learn anything from the word tonight? Okay, we're just laying the foundation. And we're going to pick up here tomorrow. But I want you to lay your hand on your heart. I want to pray for you. Pastor Mike, if you would come, I'm going to give this to you pretty quick tonight. Father, I want to thank you that these precious saints came on Saturday night. Wow. Thank you for allowing Denise and I to be here and to minister. We thank you for Mike and Vicki Bang. We thank you for this precious church, which I know has withstood attack. We thank you, Lord, that we're not defeated. We are victors. We thank you that we have the mind of Christ, the word of God, the power of the spirit, the blood of Jesus. We can keep the devil out. Lord, we just ask you to help us remember to lock the door. Help us to lock the door so that we're undisturbed. Oh, we say thank you. And Father, we pray for every place where our lives have already been invaded, that you would equip us to push it out, to push it back across the line. In Jesus' name. In Jesus' precious name. Amen. Thank you for listening to today's message. We'd love for you to join us for our Sunday morning services at 10 o'clock. We also have what we call School of the Bible on Wednesday nights from 7 to 8. 
Thanks again for listening. Have a great day.